what does justice mean for indigenous people? How can we build a just society for our people? We talk about decolonizing whatever and blah, blah, blah. Sure, that's great language, but I want to really understand how do we make that happen so that my kids and their kids and the next seven generations can be proud of who they are and feel like they are being served by their society and that they can be of service to their society. Welcome to the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing podcast, Aging Fast and Slow. This podcast is supported by the National Institute on Aging Pioneer Award. Thanks for listening. We are Dr. Sarah Zanton and Dr. Deidre Cruz, your hosts. For anyone new to our podcast, we speak with scientists, policy experts, and innovators to better understand aging across the life course with a special emphasis on the sustained impact of racism in health, the impact this has over the life course, and what can be done to tackle these inequalities. Well, now it's time to welcome our special guest for this episode, Dr. Emily Houses. Dr. Houses is a research scientist at the Pacific Institute for Research and Evaluation, or PIRE. Her research is with Native Americans and Alaska Natives, particularly in the areas of ethics, palliative care, experiences of care, and premature mortality. She's worked with American Indian and Alaska Native communities throughout the United States to address social justice and advance health equity. Today we'll be discussing Dr. Howes' groundbreaking work focusing on identifying historical and systemic conditions that influence the health of American Indian elders. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Well, let's jump right in. What does the term structural racism mean to you? So I think a lot about words and what they mean just at a very basic level. So when I think about structural racism, I go down to taking it apart and structures. So what are structures? Structures are kind of building blocks, the way that parts are assembled to make a whole. So instantly I start going and thinking about Legos and and building a Millennium Falcon, you know, because I have kids, (laughs) two boys. Uh, So we have these structures that are getting together and there's not just one thing that creates the problem of racism. With structural racism, you have all of these different Legos that come together and they all contribute to the whole of structural racism. It all works together to become this really massive thing that is sort of reinforcing of itself and they all contribute to this problem that influences society. Wow. Well, building on that, has the way that you think about structural racism changed over time, maybe over the course of the work that you've done? Yeah, I think it has. And it goes back to this idea of it being this sort of impermeable presence to being something that can be influenced. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that actually goes back to a project that I did in 2016 and 2017, where I worked with a community locally, and we did a health impact assessment looking at the way that the underfunding of the Indian Health Service has impacted the health of off-reservation urban Native Americans. So we surveyed a community of people who don't live on a reservation, and the issue there is that people who are off-reservation don't qualify for a certain pot of money 
for healthcare with through the Indian Health Service. So we don't qualify for specialty services very specifically. Anything that you can't get through a primary care clinic, you don't receive funding for. And it that has all sorts of lasting implications in the way that people behave with their health care. Mm-hmm. So we surveyed the community and we found that the underfunding of the Indian Health Service was affecting people's health in a lot of different ways. And and we ended up with a couple of recommendations. But one of the things that we found was that the community was hungry. About 50% of the people were experiencing hunger every month, which was much more than in the general population, which was about 30%. We also found that people were very concerned about behavioral health, which is no surprise. And people really wanted the Indian Health Service to be funded at 100% of need which we're slowly working towards. But the major recommendation that really surprised us was that one about hunger. And we put that out there into the community and it immediately got a response from our local Indian Health Service uh, hospital. They were not excited about us doing this project because of course it had major implications on the kind of care that they were delivering and they were getting criticized. But they learned that we were hungry in our community And they started working to make sure that they could get people food. And so that kind of thing, you know, this is a structure. Indian Health Service is a monolith and they are very hard to move. It's very hard to get them to change things. But we did this project and we changed things. Mm -hmm. Wow. Talk about impact. Yeah. Yeah. How did you become interested in structural racism with the health angle, essentially the effects of structural racism on health? Uh, so I grew up going to the Indian Health Service. That, that was my healthcare provider pretty much until I was a faculty member as an adult. And I didn't know that the healthcare that I was receiving was not the same as healthcare that other people received. I was still going to IHS because that's where I was comfortable. And my friends who were working at the same job as I were going to a primary care provider. And I was learning they were getting very different treatment than what I was getting. And they had very different experiences. They had a a primary care provider. They had a pediatrician who they'd known their whole lives. And then uh, I started to think back about different events that had happened in my life and the lives of my family members and how, how those events could have been different. And that started to build that itch of me thinking, what was it? And it wasn't until I'd really started to do some scholarship and learning and reading that I became not just interested, but aware that structural racism was a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That it wasn't just a couple of providers who were doing stuff bad, but it was actually a whole systems level. It was a whole structures level. It was a whole thing about the government. It was a whole thing about history. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just what was happening at our local IHS. Right. Hmm. Thank you. Wow. So can you tell us a bit more about what you found that our American Indian elders experiences when it comes to healthcare? Oh, where do we start? <laughs> so we did a project. We just wrapped it up. The principal investigator was Katie Wilging on this project, talking to American Indian elders about their experiences with healthcare and health insurance. And as part of this, they interviewed close to 100 Native American elders in the Southwest, which is a huge number. 
and then I had the opportunity to analyze these using my own sort of indigenous perspective. And I found a couple of really important things. I found that the, the experience of receiving healthcare is traumatic. One of the reasons is because the Indian Health Service does a lot of training for new clinicians, new nurse practitioners, new PAs, and new doctors through loan repayment programs. And a lot of people think these loan repayment programs are awesome. They're not. They're awful because they go into uh, communities that have need and they place these brand new clinicians who need to learn skills and they're there for six weeks or six months and then they leave. And the patients never have the same provider more than once. And if you think about when you go in and you meet a new provider, what do you do? You give your health history. And so these are patients who often have a history of trauma. So they have to retell their trauma over and over again. Another thing that is very common for us in Native American communities is we have to start from the beginning. We have to tell not just what happened to me, but I have to give some context. I have to give a history lesson because most people don't know about me and they don't know about intergenerational trauma. And they don't know that before me, my great-grandfather was part of, we were with Geronimo, and Geronimo eventually surrendered in 1886, and all of our people were put on trains, like cattle cars, basically, and we were shipped off to Florida, and then Alabama, and then we were kept as prisoners of war in Oklahoma, and that was all very traumatizing. And then uh, all these kids, all the babies were sent off to the boarding school and most of them died and they wouldn't let them go home, even though the families were writing letters begging for the kids to come home. And then the kids were basically slaves and indentured servants in Pennsylvania for years. And there's all of this stuff that happens that our clinicians need to know about because we carry that trauma in our bodies. And so the elders are telling these stories in these interviews saying, every time I go to a new doctor, I have to tell them this. And just when I start to get to know them, they leave. Maybe they see them once or twice. Maybe they see them three times. The longest that any one of the, the elders that we talked to had had a primary care provider was, I think, three years. So just when they get to know them, they leave. And that is awful. That is re-traumatizing people for their entire life. And so that was one thing. The other thing that we learned, uh, when they do get referred out from Indian Health Service for anything, they get thrown into this healthcare system that they don't know anything about because they've been going to IHS their whole lives. And so they don't know what they're doing. They don't know where they're going. And, you know, if you've ever had to go and get specialty care, it's a little bit disarming. But imagine if you're 70 years old and you've been going to the same building your entire life for everything, for eye care, for primary care, for dental care. And then they're like, okay, you need to go see somebody for cardio problems. And you're in a whole new environment. There are no native people. They're not talking to you with any respect. They're treating you like you're stupid because that's the way that people treat native people. You don't know if your insurance is going to pay for it because you've never had to deal with health insurance before because it was all through IHS, which was all paid for. And it's just awful. So that was another thing that we learned. And then the last thing that we learned, which is really important to recognize, is that there are these two different ways of knowing or ways of recognizing knowledge. In the Native culture, age 
is recognized as carrying knowledge. So when you have an elder, we honor them and we know that they have knowledge. But in the medical culture, your credentials carry knowledge. Hmm. And so when a doctor walks into a patient's examination room, the doctor wants to be treated with respect. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if he's 25. He expects to be treated with some level of deference or she. Right. Where the elder, when they walk into that examination room, they expect to be treated with respect. So you have these two people butting heads and it creates this conflict that you just can't resolve. Hmm. Wow. Well, thank you. You've already touched a little bit about national, state, and tribal policies impacting care for American Indian elders with the, the loan repayment. And is there anything you'd like to add about policies, either national or state or tribal, that affect care or health more broadly for American Indian elders? So I talked about the underfunding. The other thing that we have really, two things really, uh, we really struggle with getting state and federal government bodies to follow through with the tribal consultation obligation that they have. Anytime a decision is made that might affect Native American communities as sovereign nations, they should be uh, and they must be engaging in consultation with whoever is being affected. And they tend not to, or they do so only on a very surface level. They say, oh, hey, folks, we're going to do this thing. We're going to run a pipeline through your land. We're going to change all these policies around your health care. And they just say it. And then the tribal leaders will say, no, I disagree. I think that's a terrible thing. And they'll say, oh, duly noted. Uh-huh. And then they do it anyway. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. And that is not consultation. Consultation is a two-way conversation. Right. Right. Mm. That's really important. So you've outlined what some of the barriers are for sure. Um, what are what are some of the culturally congruent approaches that you've identified through the literature or, or through your work that can address some of the healthcare barriers that Native American elders might face? One of the things that we know works in Native communities is navigation. Mm-hmm. Being being that bridge and being the handholder to help people get from IHS to whatever healthcare and walking them through it all the way so that we make sure that people get their healthcare that they need. And not just making sure that they have the appointment, but going to the appointment with them, uh, ensuring that they understand what is being said, ensuring that they know what's on the consent form, that they know what they're agreeing to when they consent to something following up afterwards so that they understand what the lab results are, what what else is happening, following through with their families so the families know because it's family-centered care. And we tend to be very communally minded and not just individually minded. So talking to families and bringing them into the conversation whenever possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great answer. So your research is so interesting and important and hearing all that you said about the hundred, you know, the qualitative interviews, I learned a lot just then. But what are some of the next steps in your research, either relating to that or other new ideas you're having? Oh, I always have so many ideas and <laughs> I never have enough time to follow through with any of them. So I tend to do community-based, community-guided research. So I follow what the community tells me to do. 
that's what how I ended up doing that health impact assessment because I went to my local community and I said, hey, I've got all these skills. What do you want me to do with them? Mm-hmm. And they said, well, we want you to do this. And so that's how I ended up doing that health impact assessment, the one that was about hunger and yep. uh, the underfunding. The thing that I really, really want to dig more deeply into is this whole concept of health literacy. I hate it. Yeah. Mm. Because health literacy talks about literacy and it doesn't recognize that there are many different ways of knowing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when we look at how health literacy is operationalized, it always comes back to can people read? Mm. And it doesn't communicate very accurately can people learn? Or how do people learn and how do people understand? And really, the concept that is behind a health literacy is about, are we able to make informed decisions about our health? Right. Mm -hmm. I believe that's the intent. Mm -hmm. But the way that it is actually put into action is, well, let's just modify these written tools. Mm -hmm. And then if the patient population is not responding to it, the answer is, well, they just couldn't read it. We need to put it in a easier form of English or an easier form of their language. Hmm. But when we talk about indigenous populations, we have a lot of indigenous populations where their language is not written down. Right. Mm -hmm. Or we have indigenous populations where we were very, very smart people, but we don't have certain words for things. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't mean we aren't going to understand it. It just means we need to find other ways to communicate the information. So it should be more about knowing, but you feel like it's operationalized as reading. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And when you talk to nurses, and nurses are often the people who implement the health literacy sort of interventions, and they're always like, well, they just couldn't understand it. Mm. And they just give up there. Mm -hmm. So and then this gets into cultural tailoring. And cultural tailoring is then put into action as changing things by modifying the words or changing the uh, images, changing the graphics, changing the color scheme. And it is so much deeper than that. It has to be deeper than that. And so I'm very fired up by these these two sort of paired ideas of health literacy and cultural tailoring because they have to be put into action in a very focused way based on ways of knowing, based on who the community is that you're working with and how do they think. Yeah, yeah. so important. I want to say that um, sometimes researchers think going to the community slows us down, Mm. whatever that community is. But I think you've given such a great example of you went to the community that identified such an important thing. You did important research about it, went to the stakeholders and the interested parties and changed something right away. And it was probably because it was so relevant. Yep. Right? Mm -hmm. And so it's not an extra step. It's it's the step in a way. Yep. So I thank you for sharing that with everybody. What advice would you give to the next generation of researchers coming up after you? So um, I earned tenure at an R1 institution. Mm -hmm. And I found that the institutional racism and structural racism that I found in academia made me a poor fit for that setting. Mm -hmm. And I left. Mm -hmm. And I have now found that I get calls pretty frequently 
from young researchers, young academics who need mentoring. Mm -hmm. I talk to people a lot about focusing on what is your passion and following it. And you don't have to stay in the same place, whether it's the same emotional place or the same intellectual place or the same physical place. You have to follow your heart. You have to figure out what your values are and stay true to your values. For me, part of leaving academia was recognizing that I need to be of service to my family and to my community. And my community is here in New Mexico where I live. And I couldn't do those things if I was suffering under the thumb of a R1 racist institution. Uh, That was just making me sick. And so I tell people, figure out what is your priority in your life? What do you want to do? What are your values? And then build your career around that because that is going to sustain you much more than this other path that you might be told is where you need to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If we were to take a trip to New Mexico, which we would, of course, love to do, always open to your invitation. <laughs> um, we were wondering if we were to visit you and take a look at your vision board, what would you have there for health equity over the next decade? What's on the vision board? So I would have scratched out equity and replaced it with justice. Mm, Okay, good. And then it would kind of be like one of those crime detective walls with all the strings and the lines and everything, definitions everywhere, and just connecting the dots, building a really comprehensive understanding of what is justice? Mm -hmm. What does justice mean? for indigenous people? How can we build a just society for our people? We talk about decolonizing whatever and blah, blah, blah. Sure, that's great language, but I want to really understand how do we make that happen Mm -hmm. so that my kids and their kids and the next seven generations can be proud of who they are and feel like they are being served by their society and that they can be of service to their society. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. Well, so last, we'd like to end with what's one of the best pieces of advice you have ever received that has really stuck with you from a mentor or a parent or a grandparent or a neighbor or anybody or one of your kids, anybody. What best, one of the best pieces of advice you've received. Hmm. So I adored Ruth McCorkle. She was awesome. Ruth McCorkle had this incredible career. She started out as a flight nurse in Vietnam, eventually became an oncology researcher. She was at UW, she was at Penn, then she ended up at at Yale where she um, retired. She fought cancer several times because she was exposed to Agent Orange. And she followed the research question, Mm -hmm. but she was also somebody who was not afraid of going against the grain of challenging people when she felt that they were making the bad decision and being the bad guy in the academy. She was a real um, role model for me. Mm -hmm. I'm sad that she's gone. Like it makes me kind of want to cry just thinking about her. She was on my dissertation committee and I was one of her research assistants at Yale. But there was this point when I was, you know, I was getting ready to graduate and I had this job offer 
And I took the job offer to her and I said, is this someplace that I want to go? Is this a good offer? And she looked at it and we talked through it. And then she said, well, you're no dynamo. So this will probably be a pretty good place for you to go. Oh, oh, really? (laughs) And I think that was the best advice I ever received. (laughs) And why is that? Can you unpack that? that? Because whenever somebody tells me I can't do something, it just makes me want to do it even harder. Oh, my goodness. Well, it shows you that you can, that everyone's complex, right? That that someone can be so inspiring and important in some ways and just really inspire the other direction (laughs) in other ways. But, you know, when she was made a living legend, I went to that ceremony at the academy and I, I went and saw her and she gave me a huge hug and she said, um, you're doing exactly what we always wanted you to do. Oh, may she rest in peace. Right. That was, a, that was a, wow. Well, I think you're a dynamo, Dr. Houses. Me too. <laughs> and thank you for spending this me time too. with us. Well, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Houses, for sharing your deep insights into such important topics. For our listeners, check out our website, nursing.jhu.edu backslash aging fast and slow for the articles and resources referenced in the episode. Have comments, questions, or guest suggestions? Reach out to us at agingfastandslow at jhu.edu. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend, rate it, or write us a review. Special thanks to Jennifer McCord for editing and sound design, Rafe Reggie and Florentina Kostaka for technical expertise, Brian Fitzek for production, and Tim Carl and Danielle Kress for web design. See you next time on Aging Fast and Slow.